Welcome to the Immigrant in Corporate podcast. My guest today is Katia Stepanov. Katia is a Belarusian Jewish refugee who was born four days after the collapse of the Soviet Union. She immigrated to the U.S. at the ripe age of one year old. Katia is a facilitator, actress, speaker, and entrepreneur who is passionate about culture change through storytelling. She is a co-founder of the Inheritance Project, an organization facilitating innovative, inclusive leadership training through the lens of cultural and emotional inheritance. Katia is also a co-founder of Rebis, an immersive storytelling collective. She is a graduate of Carnegie Mellon University School of Drama, an Andrew Carnegie Scholar, and was recently a featured panelist at the Women in Government Relations DEI Summit this summer. You can also watch our latest performance as Dr. Katia Melnikov in NBC's recent limited series, Dr. Death, streaming on Peacock. I am looking forward to you listening to this conversation with Katia today. She dropped so many nuggets. Hello and welcome to the Immigrants Incorporate podcast. On this podcast, you will learn from lived experiences how to thrive in the corporate workplace as an immigrant. My name is Lola Adeyemo. I am the CEO of EQI Mindset and the founder of the nonprofit Immigrants Incorporate Inc. I work with organizations to build inclusive workplaces. On this podcast, I will be amplifying immigrant voices from within corporate organizations through solo episodes, as well as guest interviews. It is a global world of work, and I'm very sure you can learn a thing or two from my guests who are originally from different parts of the world and their experiences working in the corporate workplace. Welcome to the Immigrant Incorporate podcast. I am excited to chat with Katia today. And this is because it's a continuing conversation for me. I connected with Katia a couple of months ago when I was working on my book, Thriving in Intersectionality, which comes out October of 2022. And I have been following uh, Katia's current project, the Inheritance Project, since then. Amazing work. And we will get to that at the end of the session. Uh, but I have a little tiny bit of Katia's story in my book. I wanted my audience to have an opportunity to hear from her directly because I think, you know, you bring such a unique perspective to this conversation. Um, and of course, that's also driving the work that you do. So thank you for agreeing to come on today, Katia. Thank you, Lola. All right. So let's let's dive right in, Katia, if you could share a little bit about your your background and your immigrant story as much as you want to share. Absolutely. So I think I'm one of the immigrants who maybe is immigrated a lot earlier in my lifetime than other people. So my story begins with being born in Minsk, Belarus, which is um, part used to be part of the former Soviet Union. And I was born there right after the collapse of the Soviet Union. So four days after the Soviet Union collapsed, I was born, Belarus was a new country, and my parents understood that the life that I would live in Belarus was not the life that they wanted to give me as parents. And so 
At that time, there was a refugee program for Jewish refugees from the former Soviet Union. So my, me, my mother, and my father. So I was one year old, and my parents were in their early 20s, and we immigrated as a family to New Jersey. We flew into JFK, and we settled in Teaneck, New Jersey. And so my immigrant experience began from early childhood, from coming to a country where no one was speaking the same language that my family and I were speaking at home. And I understood very early on that we didn't belong, you know, that we were different, that I felt like, you know, my parents were my safe place and there was our life at home and everything made sense at home. And then we would go out in the world and nothing made sense, you know? So from the earliest age, I had this experience of not feeling like I belonged but knowing that I, you know, when you're a child, you pick up on the social cues really early. You kind of understand, oh, I'm supposed to act like this, or I'm supposed to say this or that. And so I became the cultural translator for my family. You know, I was the first to learn English. I was the first to go to an American school. And so the American culture and what American culture asks of you and how you should behave at the mall or at school or on the phone or you know with the bill collector that was all my emotional intelligence that I developed as a young child out of a need to survive really out of a need to um, feel like I could act the part even if I didn't feel like it was really authentic to me so that's where my immigration story begins um, is from my early childhood yeah, it's pretty early to have to take on all of that weight, right? And <laughs> all of the unconscious ways that it just impacts us um, growing up. So tell me a little more about the community you grew up in, just because I have the inside story. I want to hear you describe those in your own words. <laughs> yes, happy to. So in some ways, I think we were lucky that there was a big wave of immigration from the former Soviet Union. So we weren't alone. You know, we, even in New Jersey, there were other immigrants. In fact, this is an amazing story, but the people that we sat next to on the plane immigrating to the United States was a young mother and her son. And he was probably five at this time. And those friends that my parents made on the plane turned out to be our next door neighbors in the building that we lived in. So this is really magical that this happened. This right, like what are the odds? <laughs> what are the odds? I mean, really the odds are like one in a billion. I don't, I don't, I can't even, I can't even begin to fathom how that happened, but it was a gift, right? So the, my parents had at least the next door neighbors who also just came from the former Soviet union and they had their grandmother with them, which okay. my grandma immigrated five years after we did. So it was a huge help to my parents because my parents, of course, as young 20-somethings that didn't speak a single word of English. I mean, my mom studied English in school, but speaking it is different, right? It's like you think you know, and then you're in the situation and it vanishes, you know? And so it was really helpful that there was someone they could leave me with, right? While they were going out and looking for jobs and trying to figure out how to survive in this new country. And so my first best friend was this five-year-old boy and his grandma, and they watched me. And that was the first connection we made. But 
from there, we met other people. And my Russian Jewish community is vast. So I would say there's about 30 people that I would say are like my family because we all grew up together and faced the same struggles together. And um, my parents sent me to a Russian after-school program. Even though I'm from Belarus, the shared culture was the Soviet culture, right? Everyone spoke Russian. Everyone learned the same books and poems and art. And so my parents wanted wanted me to preserve that culture somehow, even though I was growing up in the United States. So by virtue of going to this after-school program, I met all these other kids who were also post-Soviet immigrants, third culture kids, we're all navigating like what parts of us are coming from our family, what parts of us are we becoming, and what parts of our identity are changing as Americans. And so I have a very big, vast community of other post-Soviet immigrants that I spent my whole early childhood with from Russian school. We all danced together. We all did Latin ballroom dance. This was the chosen activity for our, for our immigrant group. Um, we all went to the same advanced math class after school and learned how to play piano. And so there is, there was a really strong sense of uh, cultural identity for me growing up. I, I didn't feel, there are other immigrants I've talked to who came at a very, very young age and their families wanted to erase the culture, right? Or really like no speaking the language, just only speaking English at home and trying, you know, changing the names completely. My mom tells me the story that in the playground, she used to try it out. She would be like, Kate, Kate, and try to call me all these different American names. And it would infuriate me. I was like, what are you doing? I'm Katya. Like I, I couldn't, I didn't want to adopt the American identity at all. Um, and I think it's because I had that early community and I understood that, you know, that we had a, something shared between us that couldn't translate, if that yeah. makes sense. Yes, no, that is so beautiful and such a privilege too, because moving at such a young age and, and parents, you know, to, to, they do, they are trying to protect you when they do that, you know, to try and help you fit right in, to blend with the crowd so you don't, you know, you don't have challenges growing up. But I think it also made it easy for your parents because you had that group, you had your, your little community of others. Um, yeah. I mean, I wouldn't say it was easy. I, I definitely wouldn't call it easy because they didn't have anyone else here. So even though, you know, there was a, sh I would say it's a shared trauma. Like everyone was going through the same struggles together. So in, it's, it's both sides. It's a paradox. It's like, there was the privilege that we had the community and I don't want to discredit how hard it was that they didn't know what to do, where to go, what, you know, they, they were very, very fortunate. My parents that they got advice from a Russian immigrant who had come a lot earlier. So in their early twenties, and they were really helping guide a lot of the community and giving, just giving advice and saying, you know, why don't you look into this kind of job? Or for my parents, it was really fortunate timing because they, they had degrees in engineering and they came here, so they couldn't speak English. They couldn't say anything, but they were very advanced in terms of their knowledge in math and science. And so there was an immigrant who advised my parents to go to technical school and to learn how to code because this was the early 90s and the internet was being born. And they said, you know, actually, English is harder to learn for you than 
ones and zeros, right? Than code because code is like a universal language. And so because my, and, and my parents took a risk, right? They took a risk that they went to school, that they decided to try learning these coding languages, but it ended up being a huge gift that they followed that advice because they were able to get entry-level positions in jobs where they didn't necessarily need to have the most advanced language, but they were, they knew the language they were coding in, right? So that was a huge help to them in getting them established and in the journey of my life that, you know, up until I was seven years old, we were all living in, in a one-bedroom apartment. Um, I, I really was aware that we, of the class differences between my family and the people I was even going to school with or my friends' houses that I would go to. And my parents, I would say their American dream began when they got their first jobs at Verizon, at Bell Atlantic, right? In these companies, in these corporate spaces, actually. But then I witnessed their struggle and their journey of assimilation and their struggle as immigrants in a corporate workplace. So I would say in the context of your book, I've been much more a witness, especially of my mother's journey, navigating the corporate workplace as an immigrant who does have an accent, who wasn't able to assimilate as easily as me as a young child. You know, I, I learned how to code switch much earlier. I don't have an accent, although some people still tell me that I do. And it's really funny to me. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I witnessed a lot of her challenges, struggles, miscommunications. And I think actually my work with the Inheritance Project in a way was born out of that witnessing, you know, of understanding that many people did not understand where my parents were coming from because they couldn't understand their cultural context or their inheritance. And they weren't aware that they also have their own cultural context through which they're viewing my parents. So Americans tend to think they're the norm, right? Or like they're the default, but actually they're not, there is no such thing. And so a lot of the work I do now is helping Americans realize what their culture is and what lens they're viewing the world through. That's so awesome because, yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I, I came to the U.S. in my 20s. I would say it's a different level of assimilation than coming as a child, right? There's, a, there's just different. So you got, you got double dose of that. You had to do some assimilation yourself, but you also had to observe your mother uh, go through that because she was still pretty young when when you so came young. here and so you also, you know, yeah. Um, yeah you you watched her get into into the corporate workplace yeah we just celebrated 30 years of immigration just this month our 30th anniversary <laughs> so we came on september 11th 1992 so that was also really kind of a an important date for many reasons. You know, I grew up in New Jersey, so September 11th was a huge impact on me as a child. But then also it was mixed with this anniversary of arriving in the United States. So a lot of, yeah, a lot of intersections. That's interesting. Yeah. So now you're never going to forget about it. I mean, no. <laughs> September 11th, you weren't celebrating it for other reasons before. Um, yeah. But yeah, thanks for sharing that. I love, see, this is part of why I wanted to have a conversation with you because I know what I captured in my book was a teeny tiny chapter. And uh, part of these conversations is also taking people on the journey to really understand people's background and perspective, right? We are more than stereotypes. We are more than, 
the ideas that you get from the TV or from the media about somebody, it's really what's your experience like? What's your background like? And uh, thank you for taking us on that journey. So the next question is around the corporate world in America. Can you share a little bit of your career background, your entry point, and some of the ways your, you know, your culture, your background uh, impacted that? Yes. Yeah, so, you know, what's interesting, I think, for me is that while I came so early and I assimilated quickly, my experience um, in real life and my experience on paper are two very different things. So interestingly enough, I studied acting. So that was my first career path. I went to Carnegie Mellon University. I got a degree in acting from a conservatory and I started going out on auditions. And actually at school was the first time, you know, when I was in high school, by the time I graduated high school, I didn't think that um, there was anything that unique about me being an immigrant from the former Soviet Union, because in, in New Jersey, there were a lot of us. So it was pretty normal for you to speak another language. Um, and I felt, I didn't realize that people would meet me that weren't from my town or from my community and that they would see me as more Belarusian than I saw myself. So when I left acting school and I started to realize, oh, the only roles that I'm being seen for are Eastern European characters, even though I don't have an accent and that's not my actual lived experience, right? And same thing when I entered the corporate world. So my first corporate job was actually pretty unusual. I was a team builder. So I worked for a team building company that facilitated team building activities. They were immersive scavenger hunts. We went, I would travel by myself to all these different places all over the country, to headquarters of different companies, to different offsites. Um, sometimes I got to do games in really cool places like the National Portrait Gallery, for example, in DC or, you know, in Times Square. So I got to travel a lot. And that's when I started to recognize that just based on my name, people made up a lot of stories about what I would be like. So even though if you met me and I didn't tell you my name, you might think that I was Kate and I grew up in Connecticut. But as soon as you see Katya Stepanov on a paper, people start to make assumptions about who I am, my background, what I'm going to be like. And especially as a team builder and someone who was guiding and facilitating experiences, I recognized that I had to somehow acknowledge this in my presentation. I had to somehow lead with this so that I would get ahead of all of the stereotypes that people were already making up about me. So that was my first experience of navigating identity and my unique identity and corporate world is that I would often lead with naming that about myself. So, you know, I would get on a, a call with the client and I would say, I'm Katya and I'm so excited to facilitate this game for you, you know, and they right away would be like, oh, where are you from? And so I got very good at telling my story and, and making the other person feel comfortable that I'm okay talking about my identity. And I think this actually really helped me a lot because people are just curious. They just want to know. They just want to connect with you about something that is different from them, right? But I think it's really easy to interpret those questions um, in a way that makes you nervous if you're not prepared for that, if you're not already 
um, coming in with that awareness. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. It does. And I, I do think that sometimes the questions um, are not questions. They are statements. That's true. That's true. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I mean, I would get that a lot, too. People would be like, oh, you're from you're from Belarus. Like, aren't you glad you live here now? Or, um, you know, all of these other like I heard it. I heard it. I heard it all, you know, and it it is something that I had to learn how to just let roll off my shoulders. Like I had to learn that that's just about them. That's about their discomfort. Like they're uncomfortable. And so they start making these statements. <laughs> they start saying things that could be really offensive, you know, if you, if you want to take it that way. Um, right. But yes, so I, I, I think learn... you're already teaching us some real key insight because a lot of immigrants will face that right? It doesn't come naturally to understand that people are just asking questions. I think a lot of time you start getting defensive because of the way these statements are made. Yes, absolutely. And you, and, and it's understandable. It's understandable that you would, it's already uncomfortable. Like you're meeting somebody new for the first time, or maybe this is like a new job. You already want to make a good impression. And then you're coming in and you're coming up against all of these assumptions that people have about your culture or you, or you based on how you look or your gender or any number of identity markers that they can make a story up about you with. And I think that something that I've learned in my work now as an inclusion facilitator is to take this viewpoint that I just imagine the people I'm meeting as kids, as like the child version of themselves. You know, when you're on the playground and you're meeting new kids, kids say all kinds of things to each other, right? They're like, why are you wearing that? And, you know, <laughs> why is your name spelled so weird? Or like whatever they say when you're, when you're a kid. And I think we forget that adults are just big kids. And sometimes those adults, they actually haven't learned how to have conversations with people who are different from them. So they they meet you and they kind of default back into this childlike place where they want to know more about you, but they don't have the words and they don't know how to say it. And so they say something and then they themselves might be actually feeling just as anxious as you. So I, I always remember that, that the people that make that comment that, you know, I think might have been kind of distasteful or why did they say that to me? Usually it's actually coming from a place of insecurity. And if I can say, do you want to learn more? Sometimes I would just take what they say and I would think, I would look deeper. Like, what are they really trying to get at here? What do they really want? And really most people just want understanding and connection. They just want to know more about who you are. So, you know, when people would say things like, aren't you so glad that you left Belarus? I would say, why do you say that? And I would just ask them a question in response. And then they would have to kind of go through the process of realizing that they just made an assumption about you. And then they would often go, right. oh, wow, you know, what? I'm, I'm sorry. I, I, I don't know why I asked that. You know, I would get, I would get people kind of really thinking about it. And then they would remember me because I didn't just respond by shutting down or like getting uncomfortable myself. Does that make sense? It does. It does. And and I, yeah, I wanted you to really talk about that because I think you're already going into, into some of the tools and tricks that helped you and that I think can help people. It's, it's natural for us to default to being defensive, 
And sometimes it's get exhausting trying to defend yourself or not sometimes, I think a lot of times <laughs> it's not sustainable, yes. but that's, that's a true, that's a trick right there that you just shared is ask a question. Sometimes forcing people to think about what they just said, they can't even repeat it because they realize I don't even have a basis for what I just said. Absolutely. I, I would say like 80% of the time, that's my experience with it. There are, of course, I don't, I don't want to discredit that some people have really strong biases. And, right. and I would run up against that too sometimes. More so I would run into it like at the airport, for example. You know, I'm traveling. I have a suitcase full of cell phones because I'm running a team building game. And I have to go through TSA. And my name is Katya. And I would get interrogated, you know, why do you have all these phones? Are you a Russian spy? Like all this stuff <laughs> that would come at me. Wow. And, you know, so I also think that you can't always give people the benefit of the doubt. You know, sometimes it's really valid for you to set a boundary with them or to have a conversation with someone who can have a conversation with that person, you know, maybe in terms of the airport, I just kind of let it go because I realized this is a situation where I don't want to get into more dialogue with that person. I just want to answer their questions and, and get out of that situation. But if I had like a manager or someone I was working with that I felt had a really strong bias against me, then I would want to address that. And I think that people don't know how to address that. And this is the art of having challenging conversations, especially about identity. And I think that this is not on, it's not the responsibility of the minority. It's not the responsibility of the immigrant to teach other people in their company how to have conversations about this. It's actually the responsibility of the leaders of that company to educate their managers in cultural humility and give them the leadership skills they need to make people from different backgrounds feel welcome. And I think that so often right. the script is flipped. It's like, you know, what are you going to do as an immigrant to make yourself feel more at home in this corporate space? And I'm like, no, I'm like, no, what are you going to do? What are you going to do as a leader of this company to make people from all different backgrounds actually feel welcome and celebrated for who they are and see their unique gifts, you know? So this is what I'm passionate about, giving leaders the tools <laughs> to have these conversations. Yes, and, and I, I was going to ask that, uh, you know, because when you started saying that, I, I was going to say, well, we have a role to play as, as immigrants, as individuals, uh, but part of the audience for this is also to educate people that work in the diversity, equity, inclusion, um, HR professionals, business leaders, some of the tools uh, to widen the lens through which they view inclusion, right? Mm, because yes. sometimes inclusion Reach. is... Tough. Because it can be so <laughs> focused on... I mean, and, and look, I understand why there is a strong focus on race in the United States. It is important. It is a huge aspect of diversity, equity, and inclusion. But I think that immigrants get left out of the conversation a lot because regardless of your skin color, immigration is its own experience, right? And and it comes with the unique challenges. And I think that so often it's overlooked in inclusion. Like how do you, um, what do you need to do as a leader to make an immigrant feel welcome in your company is going to be unique. It's different from all the other conversations. And so I'm actually really glad that you 
are bringing this conversation into society because I think there are tips and tricks, of course, for people who are immigrants to feel more comfortable in their own skin. And what I would say to, to the immigrants listening to this is do not diminish yourself or reduce yourself to a label just because it's going to make someone else more comfortable. Actually, you have the opportunity to educate them by standing in your truth and saying, no, actually, I'm complex and I'm nuanced and I don't fit into one of your boxes, okay? I'm my own specific individual. And if you want to learn more about me, I'm open to the conversation. I want to share with you. I want to tell you about my culture. I want to tell you about the things from my culture that I think could improve the way we work, right? Or, you know, all these different ideas that come from these diverse voices, they get lost when we're like, oh, well, I don't fit into this box, but I'm just going to pretend I do so that I can feel some sort of fake belonging that isn't actually real. And I think for the leaders and managers, um, so many DEI trainings overlook cultural awareness and cultural humility. And they assume that, you know, we're just looking at inclusion on the basis of gender and race. And this is a huge missed opportunity because America is a country of immigrants. Even the people who say I'm American, I don't have any other identity. That's not actually true. That's a myth. That's the story that they've been told because their culture has been erased over years of living here. But actually they, they say that and it has a lot of loss. Like they want to connect back to their culture too. And if they look back, they're probably immigrants from Ireland or Italy or England or somewhere else that also had a culture that if they really look deep, they're going to find how that culture still influences them today. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. You said so much. I feel like, yes, yes, we are so aligned. Um, and you are coming at this in, you know, different direction, which is working with leaders. And I think that's perfect because we as immigrants, there's a role we have to play. We can encourage each other. We can talk about tricks and tools, but if the systems, if the corporations are not empowering us or encouraging this inclusive perspective, you know, we're just going to get burnt out. And, yeah. and you're going to quit. I mean, yes. ultimately, and it's, and it's a loss too, because I think, and I'm biased because I'm an immigrant, but I think immigrants have a unique talent and like a unique gift to give to any corporation. Because yes. when you're someone who is brave enough to move to a new country where people speak a different language, where there's a different culture, right? Like that requires an immense amount of courage and strength and creativity and all of the things that a great leader really needs. And I think that we miss out on the opportunity to showcase that and learn from the immigrants that are around us in the workplace when, when those immigrants are feeling uncomfortable about their difference and they're trying to like actually erase the things that make them so special when really those are the things that would help the company be more creative or be more progressive or more, you know, so how do you, I think that a challenge for leaders is, you know, make sure that if you're inviting people to a table, that you're not just looking at gender and race diversity, that you're also looking at cultural diversity and you're inviting people from different cultures to give you input on anything that you're looking to implement in your company. 
you know, I wish I've seen my mom struggle so much, mostly with managers who didn't understand the way she worked. And, you know, in, in Soviet culture, you're always looking for solutions or you're looking for the most effective or most efficient way to do something. And, and people are very direct in, in Soviet culture. And in American culture, there's a lot of like pol politeness and small talk and like, um, and like doing things by the book, you know? So like, so like not cutting corners or not, you know, like even though this way might be more efficient, we have to do it this way because X, Y, Z. And I think it took my mom a long time to understand that that's why that was happening because she was like, I just, they don't value my work. You know, like they don't see, I'm trying to solve, I'm trying to help them and they think I'm trying to cause trouble. And this, this, this is, I think maybe it will resonate with some people listening to this, you know? So how do you, um, how do you notice when maybe the person that is working with you just has a different approach to something and maybe that approach is just as valuable as your approach and maybe there's actually something in between those that would be better than what right. is happening at the moment you know yeah no absolutely I, I think that's correct and we are this conversation is going to become more and more important now because you know everybody's working globally now you have meetings with somebody from a different part of the world. So even if you are not talking about immigrants, we're talking about, you know, globalization and, and working across cultures. We have to be more as leaders, as, as managers, we have to be more aware of cultural differences. Um, yes, we have to be more humble and realize that just because we were socialized to do something one way or to see the world one way doesn't mean that's the only way. And it doesn't mean that's the right way. That just means it's our way. And I think that awareness hopefully will help people find more understanding with the global teams they work with, because this is the problem. We, we are on a, in a globalizing world and we do have immigrants and people from all different cultures working on teams together, but so often the step is missed of getting to know each other's cultural context. And instead it's like, okay, this person and this person go work on this. Here's the project, like go, you know, and then it puts the responsibility on the people to have to manage the cultural differences without any guidance, without any facilitation. And I think so often people think, oh, it would take too long to do that process of getting to know each other. And actually all you need is 60 minutes, you know, one hour of your life to slow down and actually have people share their story with each other of who they, who are they, what, what matters to them? What are their values? How do they like to work? You know, how does their culture approach the problem that you have in front of you or how would you approach the project? And then you would listen to each other and actually start to understand, oh, okay, this is how this person works. So that later on in the process, when you run into challenges, it's not like surprising, you know, or, why, why are we miscommunicating? Like so often the miscommunication is because you didn't understand that your cultures approach things from very different ways. Right, right. And, and part of why I, why I started on this project is because of exactly that. I think when I got into the DEI space, I realized there was just so much for me as a black person in America. It felt like I was being taught how to be black. 
was being tried to put in the mold of black in America. And I kept struggling with this identity that was being placed on me because being black was not a thing that I grew up with, even though my skin is black, but you know, that was just whatever back growing up as a, uh, in Nigeria, in Africa. And so it just felt like in corporate America, there's like, Oh, you are a black person. So you should know this. So you should be doing this. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, and that, so part of why I needed to, I did this with myself. I had to go back to myself to becoming more authentic before I could start to really amplify or I would say elevate the immigrant experience in the corporate workplaces because I don't see that happening in the corporate workplace, right? If you talk about immigration as this thing, this topic that is outside of work mm-hmm. and then we have DEI, um, as if there are two different things, you know, we, we are not seeing that there's a place for immigration conversation in the workplace and how you can be more inclusive. And so part of the, the narrative that is, you hear a lot of is entrepreneurs, successful immigrants that are successful as entrepreneurs. Yes. Well, what about the immigrants that don't want to leave the workplace? They are still in the corporate workplace. They just want to thrive and do their job. Yeah. Right. <laughs> No, not everybody wants to be an entrepreneur, but part of the skills that makes immigrants um, successful is because they get frustrated out of the corporate workplace. That's so funny because I'm like, you're speaking, I guess, to my experience, which is that I decided to become an entrepreneur because, (laughs) because I didn't, you're right. You know, I didn't see, I didn't see a future for myself in the corporate world because I didn't believe that I would be understood in my context which is what you're saying. And right. I think that that's something we should, what needs to change. Yes. So I hope there are leaders listening to this podcast in the future. And I think that immigrants can advocate for themselves. And, I, and you know, we had, you had a conversation with my co-founder about the future of ERGs, but I really think it's resonating with people that we need new ERGs that are more inclusive of diverse experiences, that maybe they aren't just about having the commonality of, one aspect of your identity, but there could be an ERG for parents, for immigrants, for people who, you know, have a certain disability or a learning difference or something. So they could be from all different cultures, but have this shared challenge or shared, um, shared connection, you know, that needs to be explored in community. Right. And that, that way you are bringing together, you are generating a rich conversation. Um, that is less homogeneous and, and more inclusive of people. So, yeah. So let's talk about some of the tools that you used. I mean, apart from the fact that you started your own company, which is making a difference right now. Um, I think, you know, part of the audience that I serve, part of the people that I'm really passionate about is immigrants that are still in the corporate workplace. Yeah. Because I know it's not everybody that can quit. Although a lot Absolutely. of people would like to quit. Absolutely. <laughs> A lot of people would like to, like, I'm just done. I just want to do my own thing. But what are some of the tools that worked for you? What are some of the tools that you've seen leveraged um, for an immigrant, you know, stuck in maybe a toxic workplace or maybe kind of stuck in this cycle of nobody really gets me? Um, What are some of the things you would recommend uh, they use or do? It's a great question. I think a lot of the time, the first thing I would say is storytelling as a tool. So what are opportunities for you to share your true story? You know, if you feel like everyone has a story about where you come from or you or your culture, 
what are the opportunities that you have to disrupt that narrative, right? And say, well, actually, that's not true. Or let me share my experience with you. Um, I think that so often when we feel misunderstood, we close off and we get shy, right? And we're kind of like, well, what's the point? I'm not going to say anything. When maybe instead, we, we talk a lot at Inheritance Project about leading at any level. So like you don't have to be a manager to be a leader. You don't have to be the boss to be a leader. You can be a leader in a one-on-one conversation. And a lot of the time, one tool we already talked about is asking questions. I think that's the most powerful tool. If I could give people what just one tool, like just one tool to walk away with, I would say the art of asking questions. And because the person asking the questions has the power, mm-hmm. right? So someone comes to you and they're like, you know, I don't know, I'll use an example of like, uh, you know, yeah, you, you know, I'm sure you love to drink, right? Cause you're Russian. Okay. Let's say, let's say that somebody said that to me. Right. And I have many ways I could react, but maybe I decide to use my, my question tool. And I say, that's interesting. Um, has every Russian person you've ever met liked to drink? Or I would say, how many Russian people have you met in your lifetime? And then maybe that person will say, actually, I've never met anyone who's Russian before. And then you can say, well, great. Well, you know, just so you know, that's that's just a cultural stereotype. And actually, I don't drink, you know, or whatever is the the truth. Um, Or you could or you can say, like, I just want you to be aware that that's a cultural stereotype, you know, and sometimes people actually just need to be to be talk to in this way to actually have questions asked for like you said for them to realize that they are perpetuating a narrative with you or a harmful stereotype um the other tool i would say is humor sometimes i would just find a way to to like to like i would just find a way to sometimes you know name what's in the space already so like i i say it in your in the interview i gave for you for your book but you know, in the in case of being a facilitator and having my name, like I would just make a joke in the beginning of the session. I would put on a fake accent and I would be like, you know, hello, like today I'm going to take you on an immense software hacking game. And then, and then people would like give me these crazy faces and I would say, no, I'm just kidding. I'm here to facilitate a team building exercise with you. Everyone relax, you know? So I would just find a way to like, just name the humor that I know they feel uncomfortable saying, but I'm like, I'll just say it for you, you know? And sometimes that would diffuse the space and people would say, oh, like I can approach her or I, I'm, they, you know what it would do is it would make people less scared of offending me. And so it made them more open to actually connecting with me. And actually asking me real questions about who I am and how I feel about life, you know, or my identity or whatever. Um, So that's another tool. And then I think the third tool I would say for leading at any level is um, learning how to have the hard conversation. So if you do have that problematic person in your workplace or in your team that you just feel really uncomfortable around, actually inviting them to connect Like it might be the scariest thing to do, but just to say, hey, 
Tom, you know, um, do you have 10 minutes today? Like, I would love to just get to know you a little bit better. I would love to just share more of who I am with you because I think people build a lot of stories about each other in their head, but when they're in front of that person and they're actually having a conversation, a lot of those stories disappear naturally because they're just made up in place of real connection. So if you are feeling safe enough to approach that person and say, hey, I'd love to get to know each other because I feel tension between us or I feel like misunderstood by you or whatever it is that you know, you're feeling, like actually having a separate space, so maybe not in the work day, but like another way that you can connect with this person and actually share who you are with them and see what happens, you know? They might already change the way that they're approaching you because they actually got to know you better. Right. Oh, man, that's uh, a lot of stuff you've dropped there. I think this is this is really good. Thank you so much, Katya. Um, of course. Yeah, you got me thinking in a couple of different directions, even myself right now, um, that we could take this, but... Um, is there any final thing that you want to share? Well, I wanted you to talk about inheritance project a little bit because I think it's very applicable to this. So you are no more in corporate America, but in a way you are in corporate. I am. <laughs> you... Now I'm in corporate training. <laughs> yeah. So can you tell me a little bit about what you currently do with the inheritance project? Of course. So inheritance project, we facilitate innovative inclusion, culture, and leadership programs through the lens of inheritance. And when I say inheritance, I don't mean material objects. So not your house and money and car, whatever. I mean the invisible things, the culture that you inherited, the behaviors, the perspectives, the traits, all of the narratives that you inherit from your upbringing and from society. So how are all of these ideas about yourself and stories about yourself and other people. How do those shape the way that you behave? And so we do a lot of programs with managers, with leaders, and also just with individuals and teams, helping people to go through that process of self-inquiry, where you go through the process yourself of like, let me unpack what I've inherited, and we guide that process. And so one thing that I can invite anyone listening to this podcast to do is you can go to inheritanceproject.org and we have a free workbook. So this workbook takes about 30 minutes. It could take you longer if you want to go deeper, but it guides you with questions for you to start to understand what might you have inherited from your cultural background? How might that be influencing the way that you behave and the way you show up at work? Um, and actually, we're about to launch our whole online learning platform. So we are going to have many courses for individuals. You know, in the past, we worked a lot with teams, but now we're going to have courses that anyone can sign up for. So if you want to learn inclusive leadership tools, you want to learn conflict resolution tools, we're going to have courses that you can sign up for in 2023, where you can do that on your own through our online learning portal. So I'm passionate about making a space where we can tell the truth about this, where we can be honest with each other, where we don't feel like we need to sugarcoat things or pretend that we're simpler than we are, where we can actually say, like what you were saying, where it's like, don't put me in a box because of my skin color, like that might not be my experience. And actually having a space to talk about what your real experience is with other people who also are coming from that same place and wanting to be understood in their complexity. 
Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you for, I think you, uh, you have created the perfect package to put together all of your experience and passions to, to support. Uh, because again, is either you come out of it, you create a product that's making money that is going, um, very well, but you are taking these and taking this back based on your experience to shape other people's experiences who are still in the workplace. And I think that's needed. I think we don't have enough of that, uh, especially when it comes to culture, when it comes to immigrant um, experience. So thank you for sharing that with us today. And hopefully, you know, we have some people that are going to go ahead and do that workbook. There's a couple of workshops um, that the Inheritance Project puts together as well. I'm just saying, because I've attended these and I know I loved it and I'm actually planning to attend more because I think I didn't have enough time in the two hours <laughs> to touch on so, some things, but um, <laughs> we'll, we'll wrap this up uh, because I know we could go on and on. <laughs> and I usually want to end with a final question, Katya. Definitely. Share a dish because I like food with your coworkers from your own country or your cultural background, what will it be and why? It would definitely be borscht, which is a beet soup. Um, and it comes from many different Slavic cultures. So there's a Ukrainian borscht, there's a Belarusian borscht, there's a Russian borscht, but they're all similar. So the, it's a, a soup made with beets and carrots and celery and potatoes. Um, and it has this deep red color and you can make it hot or you can make it cold in the summer. You can make it with cucumbers and dill. And I would share this because it's one of my favorite dishes to make. I love the process of making soup and it really connects me back with my ancestors who've been eating this dish for probably thousands of years. Um, and it keeps really well. So that's the reason that, you know, in the Soviet Union, people ate borscht a lot. It's made of root vegetables. It can keep for a long time. You make one big pot and you can feed your family for a week. So that is um, what I would share with my coworkers. And actually, it's what I'm going to make tonight. So <laughs> wait, you inviting me for dinner? <laughs> yeah, you want to come have some borscht? <laughs> Oh, thank you so much, Katia. This was nice chatting with you. Thank you for all of the nuggets that you dropped. And I am looking forward to continuing to stay connected. Yes. Thank you, Lola. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining me, Lola Adeyemo, as always, for these important conversations on the corporate world of work from the immigrant perspective. For more resources and upcoming events, please visit our website, www.immigrantsincorporate.org. You can also follow us on Instagram at Immigrants Incorporate. If you are on LinkedIn, please join the group Thriving in Intersectionality Immigrants Incorporate America. There will be a new episode every week, so make sure you are subscribed to get notified. Please leave us a rating, leave a review, and I hope to see you next time. Thank you.